นโมทัสสะกุวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสThis being the first Sunday of the month uh, means it's time to consider together the Dhamma teaching uh, that we have on our calendar page, uh, teaching by Ajahn Chah. And this month it says we must use Dhamma to find happiness. When our mind is good and at ease, then. There is a smile in our heart, but when we cling, the goodness disappears. So, since the pursuit of happiness is uh, pretty important to all of us, um, it's uh, it is uh, certainly something uh, that warrants close inspection. How do we go about? Finding happiness. What kind of effort do we make when we feel happy? How do we handle that? These are relevant. I think we would all agree these are genuinely relevant questions. Now, one of the first things I think uh, to Raise up is that it's understood in the Buddhist teachings and taught by the Buddha and all the great realized followers that we should understand there's two types of happiness. If we don't understand this, then we can be investing all our energy in pursuing one type of happiness, not aware that there's something much better. Like uh, when Ajahn Chah was visiting, I think it was this country, and he was talking about the benefits of Dhamma practice in some way. I forget the details now, but at the end of the talk, uh, somebody asked him and said, "But but isn't there pleasure arising from listening to Bach music?" And Ajahn Chah's reply was, "Yes, of course there is, but there's an even better pleasure that arises." The uh, everyday level of pleasure that we're all familiar with, uh, that uh, comes when we usually when we get what we like, you know, that level of pleasure or that level of happiness, and those terms are not synonymous, but yeah, they fit for for this discussion. Uh, that relative level of happiness is not the goal, as far as the Buddha is concerned. The goal is a level of happiness that is, doesn't depend on our getting what we want. And the level of happiness, wu pa samo suko, the the expression the Buddha used. We were chanting yesterday this short stanza by the Buddha. 
That last line there, the rest of that verse there was talking about uh, the law of impermanence. Everything is in a state of flux. Things that arise, cease. That which is born, dies. This is perfectly natural. And then the last line there, as I understand it, what it means is the, the understanding of this leads to this happiness. So it's the understanding that leads to happiness that the Buddha was really encouraging us to aim for and not settling for the conventional relative level of happiness. Now, he didn't dismiss the conventional relative level of happiness, certainly didn't dismiss it. In fact, the... Uh, First stages of training for all of us, uh, cultivation of generosity, wholesome relationships, integrity, all of these conduce to a conventional level of well-being, freedom from remorse, contentment, and all of these conditions are very supportive and to be encouraged. But uh, we don't want to allow our attention to fall short of the goal. We don't want to become short-sighted. If we're followers of the materialist religion, we all become short-sighted and we just settle for what's immediately in front of us. We don't see to the depth or to the essence. We don't see to the core. We don't see to reality. We settle for the way things appear to be. So perhaps uh, to some degree this evening we could discuss how we go about and how we do that, how we do become short-sighted and do this thing of clinging. We spoil even even conventional everyday beauty and happiness and pleasure. I often reflect, actually, when I walk down the hill here to to Mungle House or when I walk past our our guest cottage down there, some of you who've stayed here will know that a lot of effort went into uh, building what uh, is a rather lovely garden, the Bojunga Garden, down there at Kusla House and there's seven strategically placed seats, different places you can sit and appreciate this lovely garden and the seven seats reminding us of the seven factors of enlightenment and and one of the uh, loveliest corners of that uh, garden there is the corner where there's the cherry tree and there's these gorgeous views. You can look past the cherry tree across the Northumberland countryside and it really is splendid and it really is lovely. And, and as the years have gone by, it's, uh, it's caused, uh, given rise to a lot of pleasure, a lot of happiness. And, but then it wasn't so long ago when our neighbour's car came to the end of its life and what did they do? They just pushed it out into the field and parked it right next to the cherry tree. <laughs> Say, so, oh, right, well, that level of happiness obviously wasn't ultimate <laughs> because it disappeared. And, yeah, I, I feel tempted to go and tell her. I say, look, could you just push it a little further out? And I've decided not to say anything. I think, you know, the, the, the wiser thing to do is to, to reflect on how relative happiness is okay. There's, you know, my books, there's nothing wrong with making beautiful gardens, I think. The more beautiful gardens in the world, the better. I think it can do us all a lot of good to spend time creating and sitting in beautiful gardens. But let's try not to cling. You know, because if we do, then we spoil it. You know, the 
this conventional level of happiness that's available you know, to all of us you know, with these six senses, we, we don't have to spoil it, but we do. And it seems to be that the more affluence we have, the more these habits of following, cultivating our preferences, the more the tendencies to spoil this stuff. I mean, you know, if any of you have lived in, in uh, less developed parts of the world, uh, in my own experience living in the northeast of Thailand and uh, living with the people there you know, in a very simple life, they don't have a lot of luxury, but they do have a lot more contentment. Uh, it seems to be the more we can get all these gadgets and all this gear and all this stuff that purports to make us happy, the more momentum and builds up of denying or avoiding or, or missing reality. You know, we get more confused. And there was a, a, a young Thai monk from that part of the world visited us last year and it was an interesting experience where he he was reporting how he's staying here for a few days now he's reporting how he met somebody at the front of the monastery there his English wasn't very good it was okay to have a conversation but it wasn't very good And but anyway he was reporting to us later how or to Ajampunya actually how he was puzzled by this visitor to the monastery who struck up a conversation and and she was asking, how do you find happiness? Is that right? How do you find happiness? Yeah. yeah. And he said he couldn't quite get his head around this because as far as he was concerned, it's always there. You know, you just stop doing what you're doing, you sit still and then you find happiness. It's just natural. Is that right? She was looking for Oh, yeah, she was looking for it outside, that's right. She was trying to find happiness out there somewhere. And, and he couldn't, what, what, what's she doing that for when it's always there? And this was his experience, was if you just stop doing all this stuff and you're just there and there's happiness, naturally. And in his case, even during periods of his life when there was perhaps on the surface level some not-so-happy things going on. Still, just below that, there's this base of well-being that he could return to. And But even that conventional level of well-being, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, would agree that we don't have ready access to that. There's something we're doing habitually that spoils it, that gets in the way, and... I think this is what Ajahn Chah was pointing to, and of course it's what the Buddha was pointing to, this upadana, this clinging, that it doesn't happen to us, it's something we do. If we don't cultivate a little tranquility of mind, um, and this is by way of encouraging meditation, if we don't see the benefit of sitting still, and allowing some degree of quietude, if we haven't exercised that ability, maybe we don't realize we have this contemplative capacity. We don't realize we can reflect on what's going on. You know, we just basically think, 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 think. We're always going out there. as like this, this person visiting the monastery. She wanted to find happiness out there somewhere. 
forgetting that maybe there's something already there. And so it is, in this consideration, definitely worthwhile in developing a, uh, a habit, really, of spending time recognizing that we can do exercises that conduce with stillness, with tranquility, and then get in touch with his ability to reflect on this and see that this clinging is not happening to me. This is something that we do. We have a choice. You can, if you exercise attention skillfully, recognize that a condition arises in the mind there's a stillness, this openness, and then as the condition arises, the stillness, the openness is still there, and you see the arising, and you have a choice whether to move and engage and get caught up and proliferate and become something, or abide in awareness, attention, alert. You're not asleep, you're not numbed out. You're not denying or repressing this condition, not necessarily. And it passes away. All right, that's important. That's important to see that. Because we could have just done this clinging thing right there. And look what we, the mess we could have made. We could have really spoiled it if it was was something beautiful even. Like beautiful memories. We have this habit of clinging and we habitually spoil that which is beautiful. Perhaps you've heard me speak before of this Incident happened when I was a, a youngster and I, I used to like collecting uh, skeletons. <laughs> bit, bit weird, for, you know, a bit of a funny kid. I used to like dead birds and things. You know, I like to go into the house and find these kind of dead, dried things and bring them out and display them. And, but also like dead butterflies and, and um, yeah, there's something pleasurable about having these and studying them and displaying them and anyway one day my grandfather uh, took me into the living room and said oh I've got something for you and there on the back of the sofa was this beautiful moth but he'd stuck a pen right through it and he thought that I would be pleased I do remember at the time being surprised. I mean, he was a he was a padre and a, a Reverend Wilfred Duncan from Hull, I think originally, and uh, I somehow expected something different. But uh, that's part of our <coughs> culture. We think it's okay to just go around killing stuff, getting stuff, owning stuff. These animals—they're just walking around just so we can kill them and eat them. Somehow. We have this thinking that it's okay. Well, certainly from the Buddhist perspective, uh, it's not okay and there are consequences. Uh, We, in fact, spoil not just the outer world, but we also spoil or compromise the inner, the potential for inner tranquility. But the level of conventional happiness and well-being is very attractive. We feel drawn towards it. If we haven't questioned the nature of the the way our senses operate, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and cognizing, if we haven't had the good fortune to receive the spiritual instructions that invite us to question our relationship 
to the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions. We don't see that there's a dynamic going on here that we we are involved with. You know, the sense organs and the sense objects. We, we've got there's a choice there. The eye sees things, yes, and there are very beautiful and very ugly uh, visual objects. But what goes on between them? That that's something we need to really educate ourselves around. Because if we don't, just because something appears beautiful, we can get pulled into this clinging or tasting. You know, I'm sure we're all familiar with chocolate-covered marzipan. That's what used to do it for me. I've stopped now. I, you know, I don't mind if anybody brings it to the monastery. I'm not going to eat it. But chocolate-covered. <laughs> Chocolate-covered marzipan. Yeah, I could eat boxes of it. Yeah. Because it appears as if it's going to really make me feel good. But that's just an initial, apparent level uh, of perception. What mindfulness and restraint. You know, these are the tools we work with. Yeah. We might even understand the logic of this this discussion and and sort of get it, but if we haven't cultivated the spiritual faculties of being able to restrain the impulses to grab and cling, and we haven't cultivated the the mental capacity for reflecting with mindfulness and focus and collectedness of mind, if we haven't exercised these spiritual faculties, then even though we might get the theory, we can't apply it. And so we're still automatically pulled by it. So, oh, I just can't stop eating. It's the problems with the marzipan or, or the problems with the, the beautiful objects in the shop that you know, maybe you spend too much money on. The problem's not with the objects. Uh, like this morning's reading, each Sunday morning we have a community meeting and we, we do a little reading of a translated talk of Ajahn Chah and this morning Ajahn Chah was pointing out that it's not the five khandas, it's not the... The aspects of conditioned existence, the aggregates, that is the problem. That's not the problem. The khandas, it's the panchupadana khanda, the the five khandas when we cling to them, that's the issue. It's the clinging that causes the suffering. So we need to reflect on this over and over again in our pursuit of happiness. Yes, we all want happiness, but how we go about it if we're not careful, if we're not restrained and reflective, then this very natural impulse gets us into a lot of trouble. The, um, those of us who of a certain age will remember some of those great musicians, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. but they were only great on one level. They weren't great on the level of wisdom, they couldn't tell the difference between extraordinary happiness on one level and the tendency to get possessed by it. You know, Jim Morrison, I don't know, did he do it or somebody do it to him in Paris? I don't know how the argument goes. But anyway, he ended up overdosing. Um, and Janis Joplin, you know, just one more time. All of these great musicians uh, mainlining the stuff, instead of having a conscious, wise relationship to you know, the pleasure that comes from 
the world we live in, the potential pleasure, they were mainlining it. That's an abusive relationship to the senses. So the Buddha didn't want us to go down that path. He didn't want us to abuse the senses, but rather to reflect wisely. And so the wisdom guides us. And wisdom, well, partly comes from wise reflection, like uh, somebody asked Sariputta, what is the, <clears throat> the causes for the arising of right view? And Sariputta said, there are two causes for the arising of right view. One is wise reflection, and the other is listening to those who know what they're talking about. Yeah. Listening to the wise elders. Yeah. So, this teaching from Ajahn Chah, or all the teachings that we have this huge good fortune to be able to access, you know, to really pay attention. Yes, on the apparent level, you know, the louder the music, the more music, the more, the, the more food. But wisdom says, don't be fooled by that. Yeah. Like the Greek myth of, of Icarus and, and Daedalus. Uh, yeah. The father, the craftsman, who knew what he was talking about, warned Icarus, he says, don't fly too close to the sun. I don't know whether the moths have anybody who tell them, but the moths, you know, moths, they feel drawn to the sun. It's attractive, but it kills them. You know, Icarus, silly fellow, <laughs> you know, he got the wise counsel from his father, but he didn't heed the counsel, and so he flew too close to the sun, and so his wax wings melted, and he plunged, and the rest is history. Even though the impulse to seek happiness is perfectly natural and uh, understandable, without wisdom, we get ourselves into trouble. And so what wisdom does is it tells us, yes, there is this relative level of happiness, but then there's an unconditioned happiness, yeah, which is self-existent. It's not created. What the Buddha referred to as the uncreated, unborn, undying state of well-being. Even the word happiness, um, yeah, the, the realized teachers point out that this is just a relative term that we use for the sake of conversation. You know, happiness, uh, generally, uh, it's, a, it's an approximation. It's the word that approximates well-being. So for the sake of conversation, we need to use this word. But really, we shouldn't be thinking about the goal in the same light as the feelings we have when we eat something good or listen to something good or smell something good, it's more accurately described as contentment. Yeah. A contentment that comes with understanding the reality of this world that we live in. So we can hear these teachings and the, the wisdom teachings from the wise elders that we have good fortune to come across. But uh, there's also the mistake that uh, we can try and bypass the level of conventional happiness. You know, that's not it either. You know, grasping at the ideal of unconditioned well-being or transcendent happiness, grasping at that ideal and, and, and really pushing for it, but forgetting the supportive conditions... That's also unfortunate. You know, as I was saying in the beginning, the cultivation of the supportive conditions of gratitude, really investing in, dwelling on, 
making much of feeling grateful for all the goodness, the good fortune we have. And the heart is nourished by that. Yeah. Making much of uh, reflecting on yeah. generosity, which is, a, is an actual response to gratitude when we feel grateful and a natural response would be you know, generosity. And, or cultivation of integrity. As we've often talked about before in a conversation with the Vinamalananda, talking to the Buddha about the place of sila, and and the Buddha says that it it leads to the freedom from remorse. Remorse is the opposite of well-being, the opposite of happiness, the opposite of contentment. The heart is possessed by remorse, a very painful condition. Cultivation of integrity, on the other hand, leads to the state of well-being and contentment that is the absence of so cultivating the supportive conditions, really nourishing the heart with goodness, with happiness uh, on the conventional level of how we conduct ourselves, how we earn a living, and, but also on a more refined level with the development of the mind, uh, the exercise of formal meditation, whatever that might mean. Whether it's somebody who wants to put in many hours every day or whether it's you know putting in 20 minutes once a day, putting time aside to hone down those faculties which conduce with joy, with happiness, with contentment, with well-being. Being careful again to, even on the refined level of meditation, it's possible to spoil it. Now, not just sticking pins in moths or parking old jalopies next to the cherry tree down by Bojanga Garden, not, you know, but also on the heart level. You, know, you can maybe exercise a little willful concentration and get in touch with the taste of relative samadhi in it. You know, if you haven't had anything like that, it would be really delicious. I mean, talk about chocolate-covered marzipan. I mean, this is you know a peaceful mind, a focused mind. Really, you can really enjoy that. I say, well, this is the answer. Uh, get intoxicated. Get drunk on samadhi. Uh, quite possible. Especially if you've been starved. If you've been starved on the level of conventional happiness, you know, and so many of us are, you come across little relative samadhi and this is it goodbye cruel world lead me to the monastery I'm going to develop samadhi (laughs) who needs discos and dancing that's for the losers I'm going to develop samadhi well there are such people and they sometimes lose the plot quite seriously because what the Buddha really was emphasizing was mindfulness yes samadhi collectiveness of our faculties has its place, of course, but without mindfulness we get intoxicated or we run the risk of getting intoxicated. So we can get intoxicated on the gross sensual objects, gross sense world, and we can get intoxicated on the subtle level. You know. Get intoxicated on the emotional level. It sometimes happens that Spiritual seekers get inspired by the possibility of liberation and embrace the spiritual disciplines and throw themselves into it, but with a very, very mediocre level of happiness. You know, really 
misery guts, some of these people who hammering away at their meditation, trying to be happy, you know, really, really troubled by a lot of unacknowledged pain in life. Some of it, you know, deeply regrettable things that unfortunately happened very early on in life. You know, wounding happens regularly and leaves emotional scars. And Sometimes the overly zealous attitude towards the spiritual journey means that we we dismiss the conventional level of happiness. We think, that's not important. I'm going for the, the big happiness, the big E, enlightenment. Well, then what happens is after a few years of striving on the spiritual journey and just screwing themselves up into even a tighter knot of of contraction and unhappiness, and they go, okay, I better go and do some therapy. And then what can happen is they discover conventional happiness and they get intoxicated by that. Just you know, meeting a few relative conventional egoic needs can be such a relief that they give up on the spiritual journey. That's also quite possible. Yes. Spiritual seekers... Yeah give up on their aspirations for freedom from the habit of clinging and settle for just conventional well-being, what Sigmund Freud was talking about, talking about in his psychoanalysis, the best I can do is give you conventional happiness. Well, when we haven't had much conventional happiness, we've had a lot of unhappiness, they're meeting a few of those relative ego needs can also be very intoxicating. So maybe this evening's reflection on the pursuit of happiness uh, is about how to balance how to heed our heart's inclination, how to heed the calling towards transcendent well-being, how to really heed that at the same time as pay attention to the supportive conditions, conventional happiness. And then the um, part of finding balance, of course, it requires agility, you know, being flexible, not, not becoming fixated. If we grow up in the affluent world that all of us have grown up in, you know, these habits of clinging, you know, we can very easily cling to fixed positions, even in the spiritual realm. Why bother with developing such mundane things as patient endurance or kindness? Kindness is for sissies. I'm going to go for the prajna teachings. I want to investigate emptiness. I want to get liberated. Well, if we have the good fortune that we all do have to listen to the words of the elders, then I would suggest that it's wise that we heed these teachings and take advantage of this good fortune, not end up like Icarus. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sa 